The name, Dr. Richard Kimball. The destination, Death Row State Prison. The irony, Richard Kimball is innocent. Proved guilty, what Richard Kimball could not prove was that moments before discovering his murdered wife's body, he saw a one-armed man running from the vicinity of his home. Richard Kimball ponders his fate as he looks at the world for the last time and sees only darkness. But in that darkness, fate moves its huge hand. Welcome to Worth Watching, host choice, where we hosts finally get a chance to choose what we watch. Today, we're watching the 1993 film, The Fugitive. I'm your host, and I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) My co-host is Guy, who once beat up a paraplegic who really had it coming. (laughs) (laughs) If they have it coming, they have it coming. (laughs) Hope you didn't give me too much trouble there. (laughs) Uh, So, um... You know, this is my choice, and I, I will say it's it's not like the best film ever. It's not the most artistic film ever, but I can say it's absolutely one of my favorites. I've probably watched mm-hmm. this almost more than any other film, and it's, it's definitely one where if someone hasn't seen it, you know, I, I drag them to the couch and and show it to them. Okay. It's based on the famous TV show, The Fugitive, yeah, the funny thing about this show, so I got all excited at one point about watching it and everything. So I, uh, I always overdo things. So I bought like the whole box set of the Fugitive TV show and everything. Mm-hmm. And I started watching it with my girlfriend. And it turned out the show has almost nothing to do with what you would think of for the Fugitive. So everybody knows the story, right? Like his wife is killed by a one-armed man and he gets accused and he has to, he's trying to clear himself, right? Well, the TV show... <laughs> has nothing to do with that the tv show is what i call a man comes to town right so because Uh, this stuff has happened every week he goes to a new town and you know the bartender's having a a problem and he helps them fix the problem and then then the detective who's searching for him shows up and he moves on to the next town and the only (laughs) the only thing about the backstory was in the narration at the beginning of the episode and they say oh a one-armed man killed his wife and he's all this it's it's so bizarre to have this like incredible backstory and then they're like oh and here's this totally typical you know 70s uh, uh tv show episode and the viewership was annoyed enough about this that after like 14 or 15 episodes they finally showed the story of the one-armed <laughs> man killing his wife and all that thinking the fugitive was was in black and white wasn't it i'm thinking it yeah. might have been like a like a 60s or maybe even yeah. 50s yeah i think 60s yeah yeah okay. But my favorite version of this, which is really just, you know, a repeat of The Fugitive, is The Hulk, right? Which um, uh, I also have the whole series of, and I think it'd be great to watch some episodes sometime. Because that was the same thing, right? He would go to a new town. There's a detective following him. There'd be some story in the town. At the end of the story, he'd turn into The Hulk, which meant that he couldn't come back. He couldn't stay in that town. He'd have to move on to the next town, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, but that was a little more fun uh, than what I saw at the Fugitive show. So. <laughs> uh, 
so this was at, well. Let me ask before you go further. I mean, uh, what uh, what's your experience with this? Uh, I saw it once in the past, and I liked it. Yeah, you know, it didn't really bowl me over, but I I enjoyed it. I did remember the the Tommy Lee Jones line, you know, the famous one that we'll be getting to, I'm sure. Uh, and of course, I've seen clips of that that scene in particular since then, mm-hmm. uh, just on wherever it popped up. Don't really have a very intimate background with it. I saw it, I liked it, and then I sort of went on to the next thing. <laughs> <laughs> and that was well, a long time ago. They had a bunch of other actors in mind, uh, but it, Harrison Ford really wanted to do it. And thankfully, this was back in the days when Harrison Ford was actually trying when he did movies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a actually kind of similar one that's really good, which I might put on my list you haven't seen. Did you ever see Presumed Innocent? I don't think so. Yeah, that's another crime one he did. It's really good. So yeah, back then he was, you know, he was working at it. These days, I mean, mm. one of the things that just I don't understand about Harrison Ford is he has spent the last five, ten years going back and redoing his old characters in movies that destroy them. I don't, I don't understand, you know, why he's doing this, right? So he's showing up in Star Wars and then showing up, uh, and then he did it in for Blade Runner. I mean. It, Blade Runner is mm-hmm. the best of them. Blade Runner, he was okay, and yeah. it, he didn't need to be in it, but it didn't ruin the film. Yeah, I, I liked him in yeah. 2049, and uh, yeah. I liked him in that first Star Wars movie of the trilogy before I you know, found out what the trilogy was all about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but by the end, it was just, and especially in the last, because he showed up in the last movie only because Carrie Fisher had died. And she was supposed to have a major role in the movie, and they begged him to show up, and he did. And his people commented, like, he didn't even bother to have his hair done or anything. He was so didn't want to be there, right? And (laughs) I mean, the end of Deanna Jones stuff, first the Crystal Skull, which I did see, and I didn't see the latest one. I didn't bother, right? But I mean, just over and over, he goes back to these characters that he created decades ago that were great, and you know, then they do these crappy new versions. So fortunately... uh, he hasn't gone back to this character, although, you know, who knows? Maybe we're going to have Fugitive 2, Electric Boogaloo. You know? <laughs> <laughs> now, wasn't he in Witness, too? He was in Witness. That so was a fun move. one. I wouldn't yeah, mind. Uh, yeah, he had this whole series of pretty good films and pretty adult films, right? I mean, they they all, uh, even though they had action to them and everything. Mm-hmm. And also, I spent a year of my uh, teenage years in... Um, uh, Amish uh, land, so I'm, I'm ah. a connection to that. Yeah. Very good. One of the things about this film is they spent a lot of money on the script. They literally had spent like $2 million um, on the script, but when they started wow. shooting, it was still a mess. And so they were rewriting the script as they went along. And pretty much all the famous lines were ad-libbed by the actors. <laughs> so uh, the uh, I don't care was ad-libbed, uh, you know, several other things. The other thing that happened was, uh, so a weird thing here is Julianne Moore is in the film for about two minutes. She's the redheaded doctor. Yeah, and she ha- and she's a great actress. I, I, I really like her. I've seen her in a lot of stuff. But she has a starring credit. And people get confused, like, she's in it for two minutes. Why does she have a starring credit? Well, originally, there was a whole romantic plot line with her. But then they rewrote, as they were filming, they rewrote the entire last third of the film 
um, and got rid of that because what they realized there's actually two female characters he sort of had romance plots with. And they realized that this is a guy obsessed with proving he didn't kill his wife. It really doesn't make sense for him to be sleeping around with other women while he's trying to prove that he didn't kill his wife, right? It just didn't fit. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, but it it probably could happen, you know? I mean, (laughs) guys... Guys have their drives and so forth. Yeah. <laughs> well, they show him as being a very upstanding guy, right? So, yeah. Well. <laughs> you can also kind of tell, I think, that if you turn on the subtitles, you can kind of tell that the script changed a lot. Because as near as I can tell, the subtitles were based on the script, and almost every single line is wrong. <laughs> like they changed every mm. line. That or whoever <laughs> wrote them was just very weird. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you know, um, I do these pop quizzes on you. So I really love this film, and I think it's almost perfect. Uh, there is one scene, you could guess now when we get there, that I really hate, that really doesn't belong in this film. Um, would, do you up front? You know, I say what it is. Would you have any guess what scene I did not like? <laughs> uh, hmm. No, there there is a plot point, uh, a pretty big plot point that I uh, would guess that you saw some of the same objections to that I did, but I don't think that's, it's not a particular scene hmm. so much as a discovery, but uh, <laughs> no, I can't I, guess. I am. We'll see as we go along here. Anything else before we head into the movie? Uh, nope, don't think so. Okay, so uh, we get. Uh, so, first of all, you know, I'll just say right up front, I think the first 25 minutes of this film is one of the best in film history. It's something that, if they aren't already, you know, film students should be shown. Hmm. Because, well, as we'll see, it just it mixes a whole bunch of different storylines or threads together uh, in an interesting way, and it just moves and moves and moves. Um, so we start out with uh, this overhead shot of nighttime Chicago uh, and the director who, who's Andrew Davis. And I really don't know anything about him, but uh, which is surprising given, given how much I like this film, but he was from Chicago and he had already done a couple films in Chicago. So he wanted this to be placed somewhere else. Uh, but Harrison Ford, who also was from Chicago, really liked the work Davis had done, you know, the uh, filming Chicago. So he insisted <laughs> that, it, that it be there. So uh, one of the, you know, if you do a good job, you're, you're sort of cursed with the fact that people yeah. want, want you to keep doing You're that. typecast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, now, yeah, the opening five, 10 minutes of this uh, is a mixture of all sorts of things. So we have the, crime scene where you know Harrison Ford is Richard Kimball he's being arrested in a bloody shirt he's having flashbacks in black and white of his wife being killed there's news reports of what happened then we're seeing he and his wife at a charity event that was earlier that night and all these things just keep going back and forth and also the detectives uh, interrogating him um, and one of the things I like about about the way they split this up is that if they had done multiple minutes of the trial or multiple minutes of the charity event or whatever, it would be a much slower film. Right. And, 
a, a much more, I would say, pedantic film, but they just keep mixing these things up and you kind of have to figure out what's going on, right? Because you see mm-hmm. 30 seconds of one thing and then 30 seconds of the other thing and you have to kind of put it together in your yeah. head. It's not too difficult to put together, but you just have to pay attention. Yeah. Also, at the beginning of the film, Ford is wearing a beard, and I think he looks great mm-hmm. in a beard, and he really yeah. wanted to do that. But <laughs> the production company was pissed off because they paid for Harrison Ford's face. <laughs> they didn't pay <laughs> for a beard, right? And uh, so there was a big fight about this, and the director came up with a compromise that actually improved the film, right? Because he was going to have to disguise himself as he went along in the film and they were going to have to do like prosthetics or something. And the director said, well, wait, why don't we just start him in a beard and then he'll get rid of the beard as his disguise. And so that actually worked really well. And so everybody was happy with that. (laughs) Yeah. Cause we see in the flashback that he had had the beard back when things were good, you know? So everybody who knew him knew him as bearded guy. Yep. (laughs) And we see him then in the car with his wife on the way home from the charity event. And uh, he gets called in for a surgery. And his wife's, uh, his wife, by the way, is Celia Ward, who she's one of these people who like had a really promising start. And I don't think that her career went very far. She's a great looking woman, uh, really smart. She was in a series called Sisters. Once he gets called in for surgery, his wife says she'll wait up for him. So whatever that means. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Then we see the police interrogating Kimball. You know, he's in this bloody shirt and, you know, we know she's been killed. Uh, One of the things interesting about this scene is that Harrison Ford didn't know what questions they were going to ask him Mm -hmm. so that his responses would be sort of tense, you know, and and realistic. Uh, And, Mm. uh, and I will say, you know, having watched a gazillion interrogations on YouTube and stuff, it's not a great interrogation from an effectiveness point of view, but it is an accurate one in that. So you have some interrogators, some cops who are who really know their stuff and they're very on top of it and they understand how to kind of make friends with the person and then lead them along and get them to admit things and all that. And they know the point at which to push on them, et cetera. The other way you can go it was these guys do is they just go hard on him from the beginning. Well, mm. when you do that, the person closes up, right? And you yeah. you don't get the information you need. But but that some people do that, some detectives do that. But you know, they're like, oh, you know, so what hand was the you know one arm on this one arm man? And oh, your wife had insurance, and who was the beneficiary? And it was him. And you know, mm. like so, you're going to be well off after this. Although it's it doesn't make a lot of sense to point out later. I mean, this guy's a, a prominent uh, doctor. You know, he's, yeah. he's, he's not hurting for money. <laughs> yeah, probably not, especially in Chicago. You'd think uh, they got to yeah. pay a lot for the living expenses there. <laughs> but here's the thing that really hurts him, right? Because he has these scratches on his neck. And he's like, well, you know, how'd you get those scratches? And he said, well, when I was carrying my wife, you know, while she was dying, she scratched my neck. And it's like, yeah, that's not that's not good because people who attack someone, they get those scratches, right? And then the person has their skin under their fingernails. So that, that's right. not good. <laughs> and, you know, his own gun was used to kill her and their alarm system wasn't triggered, you know, so nobody broke in or anything. So none of this is good. Then we uh, we start seeing the trial. And also the trial is mixed with people describing things and us seeing, you know, what actually happened that night kind of in black and white. 
One of the things the prosecutor does, he tells the jury, you'll hear a voice from the grave, his wife identifying him as the killer. And normally in trial stuff like, you know, movies and TV shows, they exaggerate all sorts of things and do things that you could never actually do in a trial. But I've watched a lot of these and actually it is really common for the prosecutor to say, you're going to hear the voice from the grave. (laughs) So, so good for them. That was a true one. And in this case, the voice from the grave is that as she was being beaten to death, you know, she dialed 911 and she could barely talk and she's telling the 911 person and she says the name of her husband, Richard, and then she says he's trying to kill me. So not good when you have a 911 call that says your husband is trying to kill you. (laughs) Yeah. But she she doesn't say Richard's trying to kill me. She says Mm -hmm. he's trying to kill me. And then later she says Richard... Yeah, yep, so it's yep. not entirely, uh, you know, hard <laughs> evidence, I would say, but it certainly makes you wonder. <laughs> yeah, and you combine that with the scratches and his gun and, you know, all the rest, right? None of it's yeah. good. And also, you just have the fact, and this is true, right? I mean, it's just the fact that when when a married person is killed, their spouse probably did it. That's just the reality. Yeah, right? you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the detectives discuss that in L.A. Noir too, while they're driving from case to or from scene to scene. It's uh, <laughs> pretty amusing because there are some uh, there's there's just some fun conversations in that in that right, game. Right. <laughs> uh, and we see, you know, during the trial and everyone talking about this, we see the killer. He has like a gloved hand, and he hangs up the phone after she does this nine one one call, and then he takes like a marble uh, ball. Uh, and smashes her skull, so it's pretty mm. brutal. So Kimball is convicted because, yeah, I mean, he's going on about a one-armed man, et cetera, and you know everything points to him. And I mean, well, most people don't accuse a one-armed man. I will say, all uh, over and over again, guilty people accuse some minority, you know, some mysterious minority well, or group of yeah. minorities who showed up. It was, uh, I think, almost a running gag on The Sopranos. You know, they'd blame yeah. it on a couple of black guys. Yeah, exactly. So he's convicted, and and again, this the whole first twenty five minutes just moves so fast. I mean, all this is five or ten minutes, you know, just showing you these different story threads, and then instantly we are to him now. Clearly, it's sometime later. You know, he's been in prison. It's not like his first day in prison or anything, but he and other prisoners are being uh, kind of shackled up in handcuffs and everything to be moved to another prison, and they go into a bus. In transit, it turns out the other inmates have a plan. <laughs> mm. So one of them starts uh, spazzing out. And by the way, I hear spazzing is now an un-PC term, so I'm using it on purpose. Mm, um, yeah, I think I think especially in uh, in England, actually, it's uh, considered Well, here, you know, harsh. there was this uh, woman who's a rap artist, and she used it in one of her songs, and, you know, everyone went crazy, and then she had to pull it out or any whatever. So oh. I'm, <laughs> this so is it's here now, <laughs> too. Oh, yeah, right. exactly. So he's spazzing out, and he starts foaming at the mouth. As we see, he's faking this, so I'm not sure how he did the fake foaming at the mouth. But um, so the you know, and the prisoners are are separated, you know, from the guards who are in the front of the bus. Right, they've got a, a metal gate between them. And the prisoner says, "Saying, oh, you got to come back here and help him out. He's dying." But of course, as it always is in, in these shows, it's a trap. <laughs> the sick guy actually has a shiv, you know, just a, a sharpened. We can't really tell what it is, but you know, it could be a. A pencil could be anything, right? But yeah, he has this sharpened thing, and he stabs the guard who comes back to help him. Which, 
I mean, they could have, you know, the other guards are like, look, we're really close to our destination. Don't go back, you know, but he was concerned for this guy. So he goes back and he gets stabbed. So that's the yeah. you know, reward he gets for being concerned. Yeah. And the other prisoners start fighting because they, you know, they're clearly all in on it and ready, ready to go here. And uh, there's a guard who we'll see a few more times here. He's sort of, and he's been, he's one of those guys who's been in everything. And he's, uh, he's, you know, he's got this uh, receding hairline and and he's a very um, shifty looking, you know, scuzzy looking person. (laughs) And he immediately pulls out a shotgun and shoots the guy who was foaming at the mouth. And then people are coming at him and he's shooting pretty much everything. And someone hits him and he manages to turn around and shoot the bus driver. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He, he does not uh, handle the pressure real well in this case. Yeah. I mean, actually having the gun ready and everything was not bad, but uh, you know, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He should have stopped after the guy with the shiv, I think. uh, So the bus driver loses control because he's been shot. The bus rolls down a hill and so they're all, you know, upside down and everything. And you have the shift guard and the shotgun guy, the scuzzy guy wants, you know, he says, Kimball, you're a doctor, save him. And Kimball insists on being unlocked and he unlocks him and he's starting, you know, to help out the, the guy who got shift. And then they hear a train coming. <laughs> mm-hmm. It turns out the bus is on the tracks. And uh, so Kimball's trying to help this guard and he asked the one, you know, the, the shotgun guy who, who wanted him to help. He's like, Hey, help me get him out. And the shotgun guy's like, screw you. And he runs out of the bus. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and there's another one other prisoner alive and he runs out of the bus. So Kimball's all alone with the guard and he puts him on his shoulders and actually takes him out. You know, the train then smashes into the bus and uh, we have a shot here. It's actually very similar to Indiana Jones where he's running away from the huge boulder in the beginning. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The engine is derailed, but it's still moving forwards under momentum. Yeah. So he's running and he jumps. Um, And this, by the way, this shot was literally, it cost him a million dollars and it was a one chance only. They had an actual train and they wrecked it and that's all they could do. So they had all these different cameras set up. Some of the cameras were destroyed by the wreck, you know, It's good. I mean, I I was thinking it was a, you know, a special effect, but. uh, uh, 93. Yeah. They didn't really have the CGI at the time. So. Yeah, well, you could do something like that without necessarily like CGI, or whatever, right? but yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, that's a. I did not know that was a real locomotive. I mean, the challenge cool. you have if you don't use a real one is, you know, if you use a min, as we've talked about in different things over time with Doctor Who and other stuff, if you use a total miniature, it's just going to look wrong, right? Oh, sure. You you can use a very large miniature, right. That might be like feet long or something. And then it might look real enough to, to work. But, uh, yeah. So Kimball survives and the other prisoner who survived helps them out. And they both kind of get each other out of their, you know, their handcuffs and such. And uh, Kimball has a nasty wound on his side. <laughs> the other prisoner is like, you can go wherever you want, but don't follow me. And then he runs <laughs> off. And it's funny, as he runs off, Kimball says, be good, which, you know, it's like, yeah, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and then Kimball's running through the forest next to a river. And he, uh, Harrison Ford, uh, in this scene, actually seriously hurt his leg. And he refused to get treatment because it would delay filming. And also, hmm. he kind of used the injury to give him a limp for the rest of the film, a realistic uh-huh. limp. And, 
And I will say it's true that, you know, actors who are limping, I mean, you could never totally limp realistically. So it it is there through the rest of the film if you watch it, and it's pretty natural. Hmm. So he's running off, and then the federal marshals show up at the crash site, and so we see Tommy Lee Jones (laughs) in uh, kind of the defining role for him. And his one of his uh, minions is Joey Pantalone, Joey Pants. <laughs> <laughs> That's I. I knew I recognized him. It took me a couple minutes to remember from where, uh, you know, from the Sopranos, and I probably I might not have figured it out through the whole movie, except that a couple weeks ago I watched a YouTube video on how that character uh, may have been the actual devil. <laughs> so. I don't even I don't remember him in The Sopranos, but uh, he was in Memento, which is one of my favorite films. We oh, about. He, actually, okay. it's one of his most major roles because usually he's a side character, like he is here. But in Memento, I mean, he, he's not the main character, but he's pretty much the second main character, right? Oh, and, all right. So uh, I, I but, saw that, but it was a long time ago. What most kids these days would know him from is The Matrix. He was the one in The Matrix who said, well, I know this steak isn't real, but it sure tastes oh, good. Oh, <laughs> he was he was the, the backstabber guy. Okay. Yeah, because he, he revealed where they were and all that. So basically, he's oh, okay. just one of these guys who's been in everything, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'd recognize him now. I haven't seen that for years and years either. <laughs> A funny thing with Memento is watching the background material on that. And I definitely, I mean, that's another one of my, you know, dragged to the couch once so we Mm-hmm. Do, do sometimes you haven't seen it well i was watching the background material and and the person interviewing him this was like you know a decade or two after the the film had come out uh there's a shot very early on where it's actually right in the beginning where he gets shot and he screams and the person interviewing him said did you know that christopher nolan did the scream because your scream didn't quite work for him and he couldn't get it right. And so he finally did the scream. (laughs) (laughs) Pantalone just looks at him with these daggers for eyes. And he says, no, I didn't know that. (laughs) 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 Here you are telling an actor that a key scene he was in, he, someone else did his voice. And this is the first time he's heard (laughs) this. Anyway, so uh, he does play a fun role in this. I mean, he really is just a side character. But, you know, I mean, that's also the thing is like just some people have a magnetism for a camera or not. So he's in the side and he just has these little lines here and there. But, you know, he does sort of create a character and it works pretty well. um, uh, So the federal marshals have arrived and uh, there's a sheriff already in charge, you know, at the the train accident here. Uh, He's busy giving a press conference uh, kind of instead of doing his job. And he's interviewing the shotgun guard guy and the shotgun guard guy's like, well, yes, I, uh, you know, the train was coming, but I had to save my partner. So I pushed him out of the bus before the train hit it. It's, you know, I knew that's what he would have done for me. Of course he had actually run at <laughs> the first uh, moment. And it was actually uh, Kimball who, who saved the guy. Right. And you know, the sheriff's like, Oh, that's very brave of you. You could have lost your life. You know, <laughs> <Et cetera. laughs> then the sheriff's like, well, you know, is anyone alive or whatever? And actually the sleazy guard does kind of do a favor for Kimball here. Right. I mean, I interpret it as a favor for him. which is he says no i think he's dead you know and i I Mm -hmm. think he's putting them off his trail now the reason i say i'm not sure is because i think he's doing him a favor but also it could be that he doesn't want them to find him because he knows the truth right about Mm -hmm. about what happened um well it could also be that he really does think he's dead because uh 
Didn't he say to the cop that he didn't remember? No, I don't think he's telling the <laughs> yeah. truth about not remembering yeah. a whole lot. I think the way they present it and what's going to come up here in a bit, it's pretty clear that, that he's lying. He knows he got away. And that's my my take on it. So, although, I mean, we don't, he wouldn't necessarily have a reason to know he got away, but uh, that's my take. Yeah. The sheriff then tells Tommy Lee Jones, who's, who's named Gerard, um, that since the prisoners are all dead, he's wasting his time. <laughs> but... Gerard doesn't agree, and he takes over the investigation from the sheriff. And right after that, his guys find empty leg irons. And so uh, they hold him up in front of the the cowardly shotgun, you know, guard. And Gerard is first of his good lines, right? He says, we're always fascinated when we find leg irons with no legs in them. <laughs> <laughs> and this is when the guard admits that, oh, maybe Kimball survived. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And now we have, and this is uh, along with, you know, the later on, uh, I don't care. This is truly one of the most famous uh, dialogue bits in here, right? Because Tommy Lee Jones says, I want a heart target search of every gas station, residence, warehouse, barnhouse, hen house, and dog house in the area. You know, the future's name is Dr. Richard Kimball. Go get him. And just <laughs> like other people could read the same dialogue and it wouldn't be the same. I mean, Tommy Lee Jones is just like the perfect person for this role <laughs> oh yeah yeah he's very uh very well cast in this and this is where we get to the 25 minute point and this is why i say this first 25 minutes i mean you're telling a relatively complex story of what happened to his wife and the one-armed man and all that stuff and the lawsuit or you know and the the trial and him becoming a prisoner and the what happened to the bus like all in the first 25 minutes it never stops for a second but I don't think it's confusing and it's really compelling. Like it'd be hard to look away. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I, I guess we do know, uh, from, from the flashbacks that, uh, that he really isn't the killer that there really yeah. was the one armed man. Yeah, Cause so. we saw him wrestling with the one armed man and all that. Yeah. So, yeah. Although there's, there's only a few shots of that in there. So, I mean, if you blinked or went to the bathroom or something, you could miss, you could miss that, you know? Yeah. Of course he could, we, we still could get to the ending and he he could realize that that it was like a fight club thing, you know, where the one armed <laughs> man was actually him all along. Right. So there's a, there's a little bit of that, not, not in a fantasy way, but there's a little bit of that one. <laughs> Uh, so now we see the next morning and Kimball is going on along the river and he comes to a bridge and there's an auto shop nearby and he manages to steal some work clothes from one of the trucks. Uh, one of the things I like about the movie is that it, as we've seen in some other films, right? Kimball is like the smartest guy. He's really clever, but it's not unrealistic. Like he's, he deals with, he deals with whatever's in front of him. Right. So he, he figures out the next thing to do. But it's not like yeah. he's a joker or something where he's, you know, got this big plan or you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, he's not like making little MacGyver contraptions and stuff. <laughs> right. So he finds new clothes. Uh, <laughs> there's another, and, you know, the, the marshals, meanwhile, are, are putting everything together and getting information about him, you know, from the records and everything. And we have just this other ad lib that's kind of famous, even though it's a little silly, which is Tommy Lee Jones tells one of his underlings to get a coffee and a chocolate donut with some of those little sprinkles on top. (laughs) (laughs) That's just something he made up, you know? So uh, they find the shift guard still alive, which is pretty amazing. This is the next morning and he has some very serious like stomach wounds. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. that's going to become important in a few minutes here. (laughs) uh, 
Meanwhile, Kimball finds a small local hospital and he sneaks in and he grabs some drugs and he does minor surgery on himself. And of course, in films, this is always a great, you know, gross out moment, right? When someone's like mm, yeah, sewing themselves up and all that. Yeah. Meanwhile, a cop arrives at the hospital and gets a fax of Kimball's identity. So again, kids, this is back in the days where you didn't just email a photo to somebody, you know, they had to send a fax. <laughs> While he's doing that, Kimball is now cutting off his beard and shaving, and he takes some hospital clothes, and then he's in the room of, like, this old comatose guy, and he eats and drinks, <laughs> you know, all his food, so <laughs> the guy didn't end up needing it. So he walks out, and now he looks like a doctor, right? So he's put on these hospital clothes, and he's shaved off his beard, and in the hall, the guard who got the facts uh, says, hey, Doc, have you seen a 6'1", brown-haired and brown-eyes guy with a beard? <laughs> and Kimball says, every time I look in the mirror, pal, except for the beard, of course. <laughs> so, <laughs> <it's a> funny, <laughs> funny little bit there. Although, you know, I'm saying, I'm not sure you should uh, push it that much if you're actually on the run. Like, maybe just say, nope, never seen him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and as he leaves the hospital, unfortunately for him, the ambulance arrives with the shivved guard, and as the guard is being wheeled out of the ambulance, he recognizes him, but he's kind of, you know, he's barely verbal, right? And he's trying to tell people that this is the prisoner. <laughs> and, uh, so again, Kimball's very smart. He just grabs the guy's oxygen mask and puts it over his mouth so that he can't talk. <laughs> and, uh, and then he tells the paramedics to tell the doctor that the guard has a puncture in the upper gastric area. And as they're going along, they're like, how did he know that from looking at the guy's face? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then he steals the ambulance, so that part was fortunate. I will say, uh, again, from watching all these these YouTube crime videos, I actually saw a case where the, co the cop does this traffic stop and the girlfriend is driving and her boyfriend is in the passenger seat. And he doesn't know what's going on, but he has the passenger sit in the front seat of his cop car. And then he goes and he's, he's dealing with the girlfriend. Well... Turns out the passenger is a murderer who doesn't want to go back to jail. And so he he steals the cop car and drives off. <laughs> and, uh, and this started like a day-long and night-long chase. Uh, and so it's actually not unrealistic that, you know, he gets in and steals the ambulance. The marshals now get more background on Kimball's case. They didn't know who he was when they showed up, right? They just knew a bunch of prisoners had escaped. As soon as they start hearing about his background, you know, he was this doctor, killed his wife, uh, etc. Gerard orders Joey Pants to, to order a bunch of phone taps, you know, to call up a judge and get a bunch of phone taps, including on Kimball's lawyer. <laughs> and, he, and this is so illegal that even in the movie, Joey Pants is like, I don't think we can do that. And, he's, <laughs> and Gerard is like, well, just tell him we need X number of taps and we'll tell him who they're for later if we feel like it. And like, you know. <laughs> If he gets away with this, this is seriously illegal. Not that cops don't occasionally pull this kind of crap. Mm -hmm. But it's going to become important later. They then get a call from that local hospital telling them that the guard has identified Kimball and the, and the ambulance is missing. And Gerard's like, well, isn't that interesting? <laughs> so, so they get into a helicopter to chase him down. Uh, and they find him and they're following him. And he's driving towards a dam, the big dam, you know, with a waterfall on the side and all that. And uh, Gerard's like, well, is there a tunnel here somewhere? You know, and obviously there is because it goes, it goes through the mountain. So they set the helicopter down on the other side of the tunnel. So Kimball gets out of the ambulance in the middle of the tunnel. And armed cops run towards him and the marshals run towards him from the other direction. But then they meet each other and it turns out he's disappeared. <laughs> uh, before long, Gerard notices there are sewer grates nearby. I mean, not technically sewer, I guess, but, you know, basically that's what they are. 
Hmm. And he realized he must have gone that way. I always love it in movies how, you know, you have 20 seconds and somehow you manage to like unscrew a grade and put it and get through and put it over the top of you <laughs> and go down, you know, <laughs> when, you know, in reality, it would take you like half an hour. <laughs> yeah. No, it's possible that these grades were just, just fitted in by gravity, you know, like a manhole yeah. cover type thing. But uh, right. yeah, hard to say. And also, it turns out there's a conveniently human-sized tunnel system. <laughs> you know, here. So always helpful when you can run around and it's not just, you know, like a one-foot-wide <laughs> pipe or something. Oh, yeah. So Kimball does the classic, you know, tosses his coat down one tunnel and then runs down the other tunnel. And Gerard's team follows the coat, but Gerard goes the other way. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's a big vertical drop in the tunnel. And Gerard falls and loses his gun and, you know, Kimball's at the bottom and he picks up the gun and points it at Gerard. And this is the first time they've met. (laughs) And uh, of course, as we've been referencing, the most famous ad lib in the movie. So Kimball says, I didn't kill my wife. And Gerard says, I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) And the line was originally, that's not my problem, Um, which I don't think is a bad line. It's not a big deal. But somehow the I don't care line has really resonated uh, uh, with people. And we've talked about this previously, but uh, this is almost exactly the same as the ad lib that Harrison Ford did in Empire Strikes Back, right? So Leia, when he's being put into the carbonite, Leia says, I love you. And he was supposed to say, I love you too. But instead he said, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So very, very similar to this. This is a much more Han Solo-ish thing to say. Yep. Uh, so then Kemble runs off and Gerard pulls out a backup gun because, you know, any good cop has a backup gun, right? And uh, he goes after him. And Kemble reaches the end of the tunnel, which is an opening above the dam. Uh, interesting thing here, because, you know, he's like staring down at this water going down, right, several stories. They only had one day of filming of the dam. So, you know, all these tunnels are sets, right? They, and, and they didn't have time to set up any tunnel sets or anything of the dam. So the solution they came up with is they put the end of the tunnel on a truck. And, and they rotated the bed of the truck to be over the, the water of the dam. Yeah. Um, so that's what we're seeing is the actors are standing on that and looking down. And then at the end, they could just drive the truck away. So, have, <laughs> you know, they didn't have a big reset or anything. Yeah. Anyway, so Kimball's stuck above the dam. We're looking down, and Gerard's pointing a gun at him and, you know, tells him to get down if he doesn't want to get shot. And Kimball jumps. <laughs> they used three or four dummies for this shot. Each one cost about $16,000. I'm going to say it doesn't look as good as they were hoping, right? They were only able to – you could tell they can only use a couple of the shots. One of them is still not great. I would have cut mm. that out if I could. I mean, they don't look very realistic uh, to me, but – I didn't have a problem with it. I didn't spot anything too fishy. Yeah, well, of course, I was watching really closely because I've no, done it and everything. But it's it's a pretty impressive moment. You know, he's he's willing to put his life at risk rather so he can find his wife's killer. Now everyone's convinced that Kimball is dead because nobody could have survived that fall. Uh, but Gerard w- refuses to believe it and insists that they put up a parameter and dredge the river. You know, he always has like five different things he wants people to do. You know, he's very specific. <laughs> and uh, one of the guys says, you're out of your mind. He's dead. And he says, well, that'll make him easy to catch. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, guess what? He's not dead. The movie's going to keep going on. <laughs> we see him running through a forest again. And at night he falls asleep and, dreams of his wife uh you know exercising with him 
And this then kind of morphs into him giving her CPR and then fighting with the one-armed man. Then he wakes up and he finds kind of a dirty truck stop bathroom and he changes his hair color. And then uh, he's walking along the road and a woman picks him up uh, at, the, at the side of the road at night. Uh, something most women probably wouldn't do. Uh. And the marshals are, are back in Chicago. You know, they left people to dredge the river and see if he's there. But, you know, he probably is dead. So they've gone back to Chicago. And then Joey Pants says, we got him. He's shacked up with some babe in whiting, you know. So we just saw him with this woman in the car. So mm-hmm. then we see the crew, including, you know, Tommy Lee Jones. They're in disguise, kind of as like, you know, homeless people or whatever. And they're approaching a home and, oh, no, they must have Kimball now. <laughs> but, nope, this turns out to be some totally other case. And there's a really bad <laughs> guy and he's holding this woman hostage and yeah. – or actually, no, he's well, holding um, one of the cops hostage, who's one of Gerard's underlings. He has a ponytail. Well, this is the inmate, I think, who helped out Kimball after the uh, train crash. You know, I, okay, I didn't catch that. Yeah, uh, that ma- so, okay, that'll make me like it maybe slightly more than I'm about to complain about. But He was, uh, I, uh, he was being good until, uh, until the marshals showed up and <laughs> you know, threw a monkey yeah, wrench and everything. So he holds the guy in a ponytail, uh, who's one of the cops uh, hostage, and Gerard shoots him while he's holding the guy. And the guy later is pretty upset about this because he could have hit him. And, you know, Gerard leans over and says, I don't negotiate. <laughs> now, okay, what, what you just said that I've never picked up in all the times I've watched this, that it was the other prisoner, makes it a little better. But this is the scene I really hate. Ah. Because it does nothing for the film, and it does this kind of trick uh, that I, I first really noticed in a film called The Constant Gardener, a film that I hate. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, based on a John Le Carre book. Hmm. And in that film, there's a woman who's pregnant, a white woman, and she has her white boyfriend in the film, the, the main character of the film. And then we get this shot in a hospital. And she's holding a black baby. And it's like, oh, my God, she must have cheated on her boyfriend. What's going on? Everything's, you know, everything's topsy-turvy. And then, like a Simpsons episode, we pull out. And, no, there was just a black woman there who just had her baby, and she was holding the baby. (laughs) That's what this is. Oh, he's shacked up with a woman over here. We're going to go get him. And we, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then, oh, it's not him. (laughs) this is this is a bullshit red herring that (laughs) contributes nothing to the film i actually really paid attention if you just sliced before they did this and after this scene nothing in the film changes nothing the the only thing there's two things here one is there's a little bit of this you know uh emotional thing with the ponytail guy they kind of try to develop but we don't care about the ponytail guy he's just he's a third level detective his story doesn't matter in the movie. Yeah. The other thing is Gerard shooting the, you know, the suspect and then saying, I don't negotiate, but there's a point coming up in your portion of the movie that already covers that. (laughs) So anyway, I hate this scene because it lies to you by doing the black baby thing, right? You know, Oh my God, they they found him, you know, and it wasn't him. And then, you know, it, nothing in the scene does anything for the film. And this is a film that's so tight and every other moment of the film just moves it forward and works. So anyway, I hate this particular scene. <laughs> and and uh, in my own version, I, I edit this scene out. Uh-huh. Uh, 
I thought it was kind of cute, actually, a funny little misdirection. But then I, I picked up on that he was the other guy the marshals were looking for. So, right. I mean, it made but more even, sense. But I mean, even though I would, maybe it wouldn't be a good use of the time, if they had just not lied about that from the beginning, they just said, oh, we have the other guy and he's over here, then at least they wouldn't have been lying to the viewer to make this you know, shock thing, right? Yeah, That's I don't I mean. think of it as lying. I think of it as a little prank. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so back to the actual movie. Kimball is now back in Chicago and he calls his lawyer and the lawyer immediately wants him to turn himself in. You know, he says he can't help him because he can't abet a criminal action. And he wants to know where Kimball is. And Kimball says he's in St. Louis. Now, as we had seen earlier, Gerard had said he wanted to tap on the lawyer's phone. And he did manage to get it, and however illegal that might be. And so they have a recording of the call. And uh, so first of all, Gerard is, you know, makes a big deal out of that he was right that that Kimball survived and everyone else thought he was dead. And then and this is this is one of those classic scenes, uh, you know, of uh, bogus technology, right, for clarifying things. So one of the guys in the room recognizes the sound of an elevated train in the background of the recording. And that's realistic. And St. Louis doesn't have an elevated train. And they start listing off all the cities that have an elevated train. Guess what? One of them is Chicago. And uh, Gerard is skeptical. He's like, I didn't hear an elevated train, et cetera. This is a rare time when he's wrong and his, his team is right. So they keep listening to it and they hear the train. But then Gerard hears that in the background, uh, there's the train's um, you know public address system, the PA uh, and he can, you know, hear like calling out a stop. And I'm like, okay, this is bullshit. <laughs> you can't hear it at all <laughs> on this recording. But they do the classic, you know, uh, zoom in and enhance, right? Which, again, yeah. is also kind of famous in Harrison Ford and Blade Runner because there's this zoom in and enhance scene right. for him to find the snake thing, right? Uh, I mean, audio is a little more realistic than video. Yeah, uh, but but still, it's like, no, there's no way you were hearing inside this train that was like a block away the PA system on this recording, but okay. They enhance well, in, it. Mm -hmm. In Blade Runner, they, they put a little clue in there that the technology is more advanced, uh, because, uh, that you actually see things as he's zooming in on the photograph, you see things moving in parallax. So it's like a holographic picture. Right, uh, right. So, so you sort of get the message that they have, much better photo technology in, uh, right. in 2019. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in this case, they enhance the audio until they can tell what stop it is. And it turns out it's like six blocks away from where they're sitting. And uh, we now see a guy, we'll see his name, Charlie, getting his car from a valet. And he's driving in Chicago. And some windshield washer guys stop, you know, him, which if you've never experienced these guys in big cities like New York, mm -hmm. these are people who come along while you're at a stop sign and they throw a bunch of dirty water on your windshield and then they offer to clean it off for you. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it's it's totally a scam. Uh, I was in Canada decades ago. They they weren't familiar with this. And I actually watched this news thing. We're like, oh, there's this guy who's moved in downtown who's cleaning people's windows. And I was like, oh, boy, you have no idea what's going to happen uh, next. Uh, um, uh, uh. So, uh, anyway, you know, the windshield washer guys stop him. And while he stopped, Kimball knocks on his window. Turns out Charlie knows him and he gives him some cash and offers any other help he can before he has to drive off. And then Kimball walks off with, uh, the cash he gave him out of his pocket. 
Meanwhile, Gerard is debating with the Chicago Police Department why Kimball would kill his wife, and they're just convinced. And again, it's kind of funny. The casting they do, like that scuzzy guard, you know, they do the kind of like people, the guys who are kind of round-faced and maybe a little plump and, you know, mm. missing hair. These They're always kind of the, the bad guys in this film. Yeah. And, um, you know... There and these are the same cops that were interrogating him in the beginning, right? And they're mm-hmm. convinced it was for the money. Um, and he's like, "But he was already rich, so they don't care. They're sure it was for the money, and they're sure he's <laughs> guilty." But Gerard wants everyone re-interviewed. Uh, he also wants to give Kimball some space because he says Kimball, you know, needs space, so he'll re-enter his life somewhere, and we'll find him. And we see that Kimball is renting out a crappy in-law room underneath the house. And uh, it's, you know, we see like the landlord and her son, and these are clearly, again, it's that kind of casting, right? It's movie casting. It says, yeah, these are, these are low life uh, kind of people, but that's what he wants because he wants kind of a low life, you know, in-law room that no one's going to, going to find. Right. Meanwhile, despite Gerard's wishes to give him some space, the Chicago PD uh, decides to go all out to find Kimball. And uh, he goes to a hospital. Kimball goes to a hospital. And here we get our first shot of Julianne Moore as a nurse or doctor or something. You know, we don't know what she is. And she's running around, you know, doing medical things and, and all this. And Kimball goes to an area of the hospital where they deal with prosthetics. Uh, and he steals a badge from one of the employees there. While he's doing that, Gerard is interviewing Charlie, the guy we saw in the car who gave Kimball money. Turns out he's another doctor. And he's actually honest with him. He says, I saw him this morning and I gave him money and, you know, he's innocent and I'm going to help him, which is an unusual thing to tell the cops or <laughs> the marshals. <laughs> and he refuses to help them. And, and he says, you're never going to find him. He's too smart, you know. And and Gerard says, is he smarter than you? And Charlie says, yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. Meanwhile, Kimball goes to like a, you know, one of those uh, kind of circus photo booths or whatever, and he gets a photo to put on the ID that he stole. And Gerard is continuing to investigate and interviewing hospital personnel and returning to the apartment where the murder occurred, you know, just trying to figure out what's going on. And meanwhile, Kimball is like reading books about prosthetics and he's dreaming about the night his wife was murdered. And he wakes up to the sound of cop cars screeching outside and he panics. But, and again, this is the second red herring. It's a little maybe better than the first. And I wouldn't bother me if we didn't have the first, but it's like, no, the cops aren't there for him. They're there to arrest the landlord's son, who's a pedophile. <laughs> but see, I, I think that's wrong because they mm-hmm. mentioned him doing something with 12 year olds, but I think what they said was they were. Where he was selling drugs to twelve-year-olds. Yeah, they were like stringing better. out. Yeah, you're right. He was stringing <laughs> out twelve-year-olds. Although now here's the question that might make this scene better for me because I like I said I don't like these red herrings. Like, oh, the cops are here. Oh, they're not here for me. You know. But then, in your part of this, we see them questioning this guy about Kimball. Now, maybe he told them about them after he got arrested, or maybe they knew. But it would at least be a little bit better if, like they had a, an idea that Kimball was in the area and they arrested this guy and you know what, I don't know. But. Yeah. It was, it was a fortuitous coincidence for the police, right. I guess. Yeah, yeah. But I think mostly again, it was just like, Oh, it wasn't for him. So, okay. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and that's uh, the first half of the movie. Yeah. Well, Kimball, uh, Goes back into the hospital, and on the way in, he hears some paramedics discussing a bunch of kids who have just been admitted. We don't hear exactly what it is, but I, I'm guessing it's possibly a bus accident of some kind. 
Kimball dresses in the uniform of a custodian, and he goes to an office in the hospital. There's just one person in there, and he tells her that he's there to clean the blinds, <laughs> which is a convenient cover because when he goes into the room where he's going to clean the blinds, he has to put down the blinds before <laughs> he can clean them. So <laughs> the windows that are facing to the other parts of the office are now blocked so nobody can see what he's really up to. The kind of funny part of this, though, is the woman is sort of paying attention to the room, and he's like, every five minutes, he does a little bit of, you know, dragging something across the blinds. He's like the <laughs> the, the least efficient blinds cleaner in history. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, measure twice, cut once. <laughs> so what he's actually in that room for is to use the computer, and uh, he has access to the computer somehow. They may, They may have just been more... Heck, given when the movie was made, this may have just been like you you booted up the computer and loaded yep. the software off the disk, and there you go. Anyway, he narrows his search down to five people. He puts in different criteria, like the location is the mid-humorous, and the, he puts in a date range, and then he puts in that the, the type of the prosthetic is called a hybrid. You know, mm -hmm. This narrows his search down to five people. He prints the results out. Back at the police department, meanwhile, the landlady's son is being uh, interrogated, and he uh, he's not actually in an interrogation room. He's just sitting at the policeman's desk, but he snitches on Kimball. So now the cops know that Kimball's in that apartment. Yeah, and we don't know if, like, they, yeah, we don't know the connection and, like, did they ask him about him or he offered him? It's not clear. We just don't know. But, yeah. but at some point they realize that, that he knew you know, that the guy in this basement was Kimball. <laughs> yeah. Back in the hospital, Kimball is just standing around in a very busy hallway. This is full of kids on stretchers from the, whatever happened, the bus accident or whatever. I don't know why he's really just standing around there instead of hiding some somewhere, <laughs> but uh, uh, that's what he's doing. Meanwhile, the marshal goes to check out the apartment that Kimball was renting. There's a lot of switching around uh, throughout this movie, you know, just little quick cutaways to other scenes and things going on simultaneously. And the marshal checks that apartment out. Back at the hospital, a doctor, this is that Julianne Moore we were talking about. She's a red-headed doctor. Uh, she asks Kimball to help out by uh, delivering the gurney somewhere in the hospital. She tells him where to take it. And he says he will, and he see, she sees him check the x-rays as he's wheeling it away. She makes a mental note of that. We see her look sort of mm -hmm. perplexed. Well, yeah, and earlier with this kid, she had told the person who was taking care of the kid to make sure to check his x-rays, and he got distracted, and he didn't. Yeah. Um, so we don't know what it is, but there's something he missed because he didn't look at the x-rays, and and Kimball saw that he didn't look at the x-rays, so he does look at the x-rays. <laughs> right, yeah. He, he started to, and then one of the doctors called him away for something else, and he set it down right away and went off. So in the apartment, Gerard finds a fake ID that Kimball has constructed for Cook County Hospital, uh, or, or the remains of his right. construction of a fake ID. Kimball, in the hospital, delivers this injured boy to a doctor, after altering the patient's chart. And the doctor who sent him, uh, Moore, she catches him in the hallway and asks him why he was looking at the x-ray. And she grabs his badge and calls for security, so he bolts, of course. <laughs> Gerard arrives at the hospital, and this same doctor explains that Kimball fled 
and also that he saved the kid's life. And the ID badge says Desmondo Jose Ruiz. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Harrison Ford isn't the most uh, Hispanic-looking guy, but, uh, you yeah, know, worked for him, I guess, long enough. Well, I think he had a different name on there, but when he peeled off the fake name, that's when he saw the... Oh, the yeah, Hispanic yeah, he did, he did rip something off there, so that was, like, underneath. Okay, good point. Cosmo asks why Kimball was stupid enough to hang out here. We which, should say, because I didn't call him that. Cosmo is Joey Pants, but I just can't resist oh, calling yeah. him Joey Pants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just when he asks that, uh, almost providentially, uh, an amputee walks by Gerard and Cosmo in the hall. So they start following him, which is is amusing little scene because the guy notices they're following him. Well, yeah, it's really pretty rude. That. They're like staring at his, you know, missing arm and everything. I'm sure he's <laughs> sure he's tired of that. But, you know. So when they uh, get to the uh, office of the prosthetics department or whatever it's called, uh, he asks him if they have a problem, and they say no. But then Gerard sort of muscles his way past so he can be the first one to talk to the receptionist. Meanwhile, Kimball begins making calls about the people on his printout, and uh, uh, initially, he doesn't seem to have a great deal of success. One of them has already died. You know, each each one is immediately disqualified for different reasons. Gerard repeats Kimball's search on the computer, you know, with the searching for the mid-humorous and all that, while Kimball makes uh, more calls. Kimball then, uh, he's, he's heading out through Chicago. He notices the St. Patrick's Day Parade is going on. So we know, we know the time of the movie if we didn't before. <laughs> he enters a big building with high security. He gets into an elevator and a bunch of cops get in with him, which is kind of uncomfortable, but they don't take any notice of him. Gerard and two agents come through the security gate of the same building. When Kimball gets to his destination floor, he tells the guard he's there to see Clive Driscoll. Meanwhile, down on the first floor, the agents annoy Gerard by saying hinky, which is a term he doesn't like. And it's a term <laughs> I've actually heard actual police use before, um, and it's, it just means suspicious or fishy. Or, I think I've even used it on our podcasts uh, before <laughs> in the past, but uh, it's something that police say. Uh, but Gerard doesn't like it. He he thinks it's just too cute by half, I guess. And so he he goes to take the stairs because he doesn't want him using words he doesn't understand. So Driscoll arrives upstairs uh, in the visiting room, and uh, he's not the guy that uh, Harrison Ford saw on the night of the murder. So Kimball apologizes to him for wasting his time, and he leaves. But Clive doesn't want him to go so fast. You know, There's, uh, he says, there ain't no cable in this damn place. So <laughs> he wants Kimball to just stay and chat, you know, just provide a little different experience. But uh, Kimball is a fugitive, so he's got to you know, make that his priority. And as he leaves, a guard watches him kind of suspiciously. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he's leaving almost as soon as he entered. And we don't know for certain that the guard hasn't been listening in because they they told him up front they could listen in on the conversations. So anyway, the guard's looking at him kind of kind of suspiciously. So Gerard comes out of one staircase that he's ascending just in time to see Kimball enter the other staircase across the hall from him. He runs down a flight or so, and he looks down, sees Kimball walking down the spirals We should say he doesn't know what he looks like at this point because he's got the hair coloring and everything, so he's sort of guessing that it's him 
Yeah, although I think he's he might still be wearing the same old kind of beat up coat yeah. he was wearing in the St. Patrick's Day parade. So this is the point, you know, because but I think he's guessing because he yells out Richard, mm-hmm. and when Kimball looks up, that's when he knows right. that it's him, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah he he's looking down through these spiral stairs and he sees uh, sees Kimball on the, you know a flight or two of stairs below him walking down and he calls it out. And, and not at hearing his name, he just Richard instinctively looks up, and there's a big chase through the building on the ground floor. Uh, Kimball's running for the exit. Gerard orders the gates shut, but there's a a delay. There's a little mix up because uh, Kimball, while he was running, he said the guy behind me is crazy <laughs> or something like that. Right, he said, um, he said he's waving a so, gun at people and all that. Yeah. <laughs> So the guards were on him momentarily until they established he was a marshal. So Gerard orders the gates shut, but Kimball slips through just in time. He gets through the security gate, and he gets through the building's doors, and uh, they shut behind him, and they're difficult to open. Gerard, now this I'm pretty sure is not proper police procedure. <laughs> Gerard fires at him, uh, and and he's not... You know, Kimball wasn't offering any resistance or aiming he a weapon a at him or, or anything. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't think police are usually well, supposed to shoot under those circumstances. But I a few things about this, I think, is a key point in the movie. One, it is really brutal. I mean, he fires like six shots at the glass, and you see, I mean, it's bulletproof glass. It's bulletproof. <laughs> it's bullet bulletproof glass, so the bullets don't go through. But you see them smacking, and he is not kidding, right? I mean, he shoots all the way down. So he would have killed him if he'd hit him. And this is why I felt like that scene earlier was not necessary. You know, the the scene where they get the other prisoner and and Gerard shoots him and says, I don't negotiate, not necessary because this shows that, right? Yeah. He, He has a sense by now that Gerard might be innocent and he is willing to shoot him. No problem. Another couple of interesting things here. How they did this is unusual because usually when you have like glass being shot or, or kicked out or whatever, right, what they usually do is they put little explosives on the glass and they mm, blow up the glass squibs. right at, yeah, they blow up the glass right at the point that the person's punching it or kicking it or shooting it, right? And, and the whole window goes out at that point, right? But that's not what they wanted here, right? They wanted those individual shots because that's really important. You see how seriously he's trying to shoot him. If, if they just, if it had just smashed the glass that you wouldn't get the same effect. Right. Right. How they did that was over, uh, his shoulder when, um, he's shooting, they had a, uh, a special, uh, light targeted gun thing that shot, uh, wax bullets. And so what's happening is the wax bullets are smacking up against the window and spreading out. And it looks like, uh, you know, you shot the glass. Oh, uh, no kidding. That was pretty, pretty clever, yeah. Yeah, that's a good effect. Huh. Oh, pretty slick. Those Hollywood people, they think of all <laughs> kinds of clever stuff. So the bulletproof glass, <laughs> I had to stumble a little too. Uh, it pr- protects Kimball and he slips away. The chase continues. Now it's through the St. Patrick's Day Parade and we get a minute or two of... Uh, cat and mouse you know and uh gerard is looking over railings to see if he's hiding behind a banner and, and stuff he's like grabbing that. hats and costumes and stuff and putting them on yeah now, 
this whole sequence, by the way, was not in the script. It was St. Patrick's Day, and they just went out and shot it. And they literally <laughs> went around with cameras. People didn't know what they were doing, and they just shot it. <laughs> yeah, which oh, no, also, couldn't. I'm sure it was totally illegal because you're normally supposed to have like Probably, you know uh, uh, licenses yeah. and everything permits for whatever shooting you do. Um, so yeah. Well, <laughs> given that it was Chicago, I'm sure there was some way to smooth things over <laughs> with the authorities. I don't yeah. know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Kimball manages to uh, get a hold of a green derby hat, and he blends in. He's actually marching with one of the groups in the parade. The ultimate yeah. <laughs> disguise, that tiny little green derby hat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's a fugitive. He wouldn't have a green derby hat. <laughs> uh, and then at an opportune moment, he vanishes into the crowd that's watching the parade. That night, there's a press conference. Gerard says no comment to pretty much everything. And Kimball has a nice outfit now. We see he comes out of a store with a nice beige sport coat over a blue shirt and tie. One thing I'd say about the press conference, one, is kind of funny because maybe these days it would be a little more realistic that the press would know what was going on so much. But especially in 93, like the idea that they would know exactly what had been going on and why Kimball was and, you know, they're grilling him on why didn't he catch him when he came back to Chicago and all this. But it's also, you know, it is humiliating for him, right? Because Gerard is this guy's in total control and he's the boss and, you know, he's always right about everything. And the press is just dressing him down because they haven't caught this guy, right? And so right. It, is it is embarrassing for him. Oh, sure. Now, a new day dawns now. Kimball calls a number, but there's no answer, which is actually a good thing because he's presumably calling the number of this apartment he's about to break into. He looks around the street and he spots some stakeout cops. Uh, so he starts traveling over the rooftops. He finally gets to a window and breaks through it. And uh, the window is actually not only on a high floor, but it's also got some boards nailed over it. So he has to get through those. But finally, he gets into the apartment that he's looking for. And he sees a picture of the homeowner, Frederick Sykes. Uh, we see a, we see a diploma for him on the wall or a police academy diploma, something like that. He's in a cop uniform, and he's also the one-armed man uh, <laughs> that uh, 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 Kimball recognizes him. Well, I think we see with all you know, he looks at a lot of different pictures and you know, and awards and everything, and you can kind of put it together there that he was a cop and that it was a some kind of cop-related incident that caused him to lose his arm right and he got like right. you know uh, commendations for his his acts with that and everything right yeah and uh kimball finds the a bionic arm in a, in a <laughs> drawer he also finds photos from a trip to cancun and here he he flashes back he was invited on that trip it was sponsored by a pharmaceutical company uh but he didn't go kimball at this point figures that the dr lentz is behind it all because he's and, in one uh, of the photos right. with with the, at least now, one-armed guy. I'm not sure if he was the one-armed guy when they took the photo. I guess he probably would have been. Yeah. Yep. He finds pay stubs from the pharmaceutical company, Devlin McGregor. And he has another flashback of walking into a big charity event sponsored by that company. And at the entrance to this big charity event, people are offering cruises. So these cruises are a big, uh, you know, they're, there's some kind of, uh, I don't know, the, the 
it's prob you get the feeling that something more than simple goodwill marketing. Right. Yeah, because one of them is like, oh, no strings attached, you know, et cetera. <laughs> but by the way, that you know, that charity event is the charity event from the the day his wife got killed. So it's like exactly a year later. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. At Gerard's office, Kimball calls just long enough for the marshals to trace Kimball to Sykes' apartment. Uh, and Kimball hangs up, but uh, I'm going to use a couple words that our younger viewers may not recognize. He doesn't replace the handset in the cradle. <laughs> this, the handset is what you talk into, uh, sort of like yeah. the modern-day cell phone. The cradle is where you would set it, and it had a hook on it. It was called a hook. It was actually like a switch where you'd put the handset down, and that would disconnect the call. But he doesn't put it back in the cradle, so he just rests it on the table, and that means that the call is still going. So he wants the, to be sure that the marshals are tracing this call. Right. And, I mean, he has said before, you know, he, he talked to Gerard, and he uh, they had some back and forth. And I think this is where he, he, like, reminds Gerard that he said he didn't care that he hadn't killed his wife. And, and you know, he's obviously very uh, not happy that Gerard said that. But um, And then he says, I've just found a big piece. You know, I'm well, something like Gerard says, I'm not trying to solve this puzzle. And he says, I am, and I just found a big piece, right? And that's when he puts <laughs> the phone down and knows that they'll be coming for, for this place. Yeah. So he's got to get out of there. Uh, and sure enough, very soon the marshals uh, check out the apartment. Kimball's prints are all over the apartment. Uh, Gerard sees these photos and starts sifting through them. And then Sykes returns home from wherever he's been. Uh, he tells Gerard he doesn't know Richard Kimball. Sykes was questioned a year ago when the murder happened, but he was out of town that night, he says. Yeah, and he also kind of pulls the, you know, so I'm a one-armed man, so you think I'm guilty just because I'm one-armed, right? <laughs> so, well, yeah. you know, there aren't that many, you know. <laughs> yeah, playing the amputee card, yeah, it works every time. <laughs> also, I think it's funny, and I, I'm sure they did this on purpose, he has the worst prosthetic hand right on his arm. Like when he's walking around, like it's so obvious that, it's, you know, he's one armed. And I think that like, even at that time, even in 93, they probably had much better looking ones, but I think they just wanted it to be really obvious in the movie. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> it turns out Sykes handles security for top Devlin McGregor executives. Apparently not for his own apartment though, at least not beyond boarding <laughs> yeah. up a window. Sykes says that the pictures are from Cancun, and Kimball didn't go on that trip. He also mentions that he lost his arm in the line of duty, which mm. he might he might be hoping that that will get him a little bit of a break from a fellow law enforcement officer. Uh, but when Gerard leaves the apartment, he doesn't seem to trust Sykes very much at all, and he has his men put a watch on the apartment. Then he has some of his men investigate the guy in the photo, who is Dr. Lentz. Uh, the man who Kimball now suspects of being the mastermind of the whole thing. By the way, a little Easter egg I noticed when I was taking notes. I'd never noticed this before watching it, which is when in the in the first scenes when Kimball is called in for surgery. The reason he's called in for surgery is they had called Dr. Lentz and Dr. Lentz hadn't responded. Mm. 
And that's so again, there's no way in the beginning you would notice that. It's the only thing, you know, it's the kind of thing you could only notice when you watch the movie again. But that becomes uh, significant to where we're going with <laughs> Dr. Lindstrom. Mm, right. So, so presumably that was. That was the same day that that yep. uh, those signatures were. Okay, well, yep, we'll get to yep. that very shortly. <laughs> so there's a cardiologist convention at the Hilton. We see that Dr. Nichols is there, and he gets a yeah, call from Kim. Who I was describing was Charlie, right? So that's his, his Charlie, friend from earlier who gave him money and said they'd never find him and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Charlie is Charles Nichols, the uh, esteemed surgeon or some kind of doctor. He gets a call from Kimball at the hotel. Kimball says it was Lentz. Lentz was the bad guy. He was supervising the trials of RDU-90, an experimental drug. But uh, Charlie tells him that Lentz died last summer in a car accident. Hmm. So based on what I was saying earlier, then that would mean he pro- he died the day that all this happened, right? The day his wife was killed. So all this stuff was yeah. like... Man, Although, although if if the event was around St. Patrick's Day last year, Lentz might have lived a while longer. Uh, but eh, I don't know. I just have to <laughs> sit down and think about it, and I'm not inclined to. So <laughs> I also, I think he does mention here. By the way, part of the the deal is that uh, Kimball is saying he had disproved that this treatment worked. Right? He had he had provided liver samples that showed that it didn't work and Lentz must have yeah. been, you know, keeping that information from coming through. Yeah. This is the first we've heard of this, that Kimball knew that there were problems created. RDU 90 had side effects that were bad for the liver. That's really all we know about it. But, uh, this is more than we knew up to now. So now we have an actual possible motive for Lentz because Kimball was trying to sour the whole deal but i'll I'll have some more to say about this uh in a little bit here (laughs) so charles is to call a guy at the hospital uh kimball asked him to call bones we don't know yet who bones is or what he does but he's at the hospital and he can help uh kimball in some way gerard comes to the hotel uh after kimball is uh done with his call he has a few more questions for nichols and so nichols tells him he doesn't know sykes and he also says that he's never seen Lentz. So that's uh, that's where Gerard leaves it for now, at least as far as Nichols is concerned. Gerard's agents notice that the guy in the photo, uh, Lentz, has a Chicago Municipal Hospital shirt. So they decide to check it out. But I'm not sure. The shirt says Chicago Municipal Hospital, but the building we saw earlier said Cook County Hospital. Uh, so I'm not sure what the difference is. Maybe. Yeah, I think they, well, they are technically supposed to be the same place. But, you know, what we learned, kind of the idea is that the hospital collaborated, I think, with the company on these trials for this for this drug, right? Right, right. And uh, and, and actually, there's a, a quote we'll get to later that hopefully, if I remember, I'll, uh, it, it's directly <laughs> mentioning this cooperation, but we'll, we'll get to that. So... Sykes, meanwhile, gets a call, and uh, we don't know it in the scene, but presumably it's from Nichols uh, in in retrospect. Spoiler. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'll say since we mentioned, but and I've listened to other people do, you know, reviews of this, which is a lot of people are disappointed when they find this out because you can't tell so much from what we've said, but watching the movie – 
Nichols seems like a really good friend, right? I mean, he mm-hmm. gave him money. He defended him. He told them he'd never find him. And he just seems like a really solid guy. Yeah, uh, that so just guys, made me all the more suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, if you have a good friend, watch out. You know, <laughs> they're out to get you. <laughs> so Kimball's back in the hospital. Uh, he's speaking to Bones. Bones has this uh, little sort of dingy but large uh, facility somewhere in a basement or something. And uh, Kimball gets the last liver sample from him. Uh, Bone still has the archive of all these samples. The one thing I wondered here is this is not a refrigerated room, and I'm thinking I would think that liver samples would need to be refrigerated, but you know, maybe well, that's just me. <laughs> I think these are cross sections on slides, yeah. so yeah. uh, so they're probably preserved somehow. I don't, yeah. I don't know how that works in the medical world, but I think once you put something on a slide, it lasts for a while. It makes sense. And uh, Bones asks him uh, how that thing with his wife is going. So apparently he's not aware that Kimball has been <laughs> convicted, sentenced to yeah. <laughs> lethal injection or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I think I forgot, I forgot to mention the first part that Kimball was sentenced to death. So that was part of the reason he had the motivation to run. So, yeah. Yeah. So we see, meanwhile, a fire engine is heading to Sykes' apartment. Apparently he called in a phony fire alarm. And this gives him enough confusion that he can leave past the uh, police who are staking him out. Now I'm going to, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but God, these guys were bad, right? They're staking this guy out and they didn't have anyone in the back. (laughs) (laughs) So when the fire engine comes, they're all distracted and he goes out the back and there's no one in the back. Okay. I mean, again, these we've already seen from these cops and, and not to be stereotypical, they are Chicago cops. And unfortunately Chicago (laughs) cops are not generally, not generally the best. (laughs) Well, knock on wood, I haven't had any run-ins with them. So I I can't, I can't say pro or con against them, but I know the city government on the whole is, uh, well, it doesn't have a squeaky clean reputation. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was just, uh, I don't know if I'll leave this in or not, but I was just rewatching a thing about, uh, Jesse Smollett stuff. Right. And it was so corrupt that, you know, the head prosecutor who was friends with Smollett and his family, you know, did all these things to bury the case and, you know, and then she recused herself. But, but what she did when she recused herself, instead of giving the case to another department, she created a brand new position that reported to a non-existent entity and assigned one of her employees to that position and put him in charge of the case. Right. So this was classic <laughs> Chicago corruption. So, you know, that just happened a couple of years ago. So, yep, that's Chicago. Yeah. I remember hearing a little something about that, but yeah. So at the hospital, the marshals learn that the guy in the photo was Lent and they learn that he is dead. Mm-hmm. Kimball, meanwhile, is reunited with Kath. Now, Kath, we met earlier briefly. Um, she was she had talked to, I think she was talking to the marshals, and she said uh, she was sure Kimball didn't do it. She knew he yeah. couldn't have done right. it. She's another doctor, and she's got, you know, like a, a microscope there and everything. Did you notice? Here's something I noticed. The scenes with him and her where she's, you know, he she's helping him look at these samples through the microscope and everything. This is the exact same scene, almost the exact same angles as in Halloween 3, 
the woman who is uh, doing the checking out the remains from the car oh. um, throughout the thing. And he comes in at some point and they have a little back and forth. This is a duplicate scene. She practically has the same hairdo, uh, etc. I'm not saying the movies were copying each other. I just yeah. think it's funny. That, that it's basically just a it's funny, little, <laughs> yeah. uh, funny little uh, similarity. Oh, yeah, and you me. also, she likes him so much that sort of like in Halloween 3, there's the implication, which in fact, when they originally shot this, was there more that they had some kind of connection right and in the original one they actually shot additional scenes that had a romantic connection between them and then yeah. as I mentioned, they decided to get rid of all that because they felt like he 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 wouldn't do that while he was focusing on on his task here so oh sure yeah but, but yeah, you it do just, it really moves me <laughs> yeah you do get the impression that they're pretty close at least that they're mm-hmm. pretty good friends I'm going to make a note here. I just realized Outland would make a good host's choice. Because <laughs> there's, well, we there's a scene in that where uh, uh, Sean Connery is consulting with the Space Colony's uh, doctor. You know, and that's kind of <laughs> you, you talking about all this reminded, reminded right. yeah, me. Yeah, we, we had to put together a mashup of these scenes. Well, yeah, I kind of <laughs> have this rule that, you know, once we've talked about something half a dozen times, so there's Creep Show. And there's Outland, both of which have come up uh, many times in the podcast. So, <laughs> oh yeah, you know, yeah. Let's see, where was I? What's his name? Kath. Okay. Uh, so yeah, Kimball's reunited with Kath. Um, meanwhile, uh, Sykes is walking to the hospital. Kath checks this liver sample, and it turns out that not only this sample, but in fact, all the samples that she's mm-hmm. checked, uh, she's checked some other samples too. All these samples. First of all, they do not show what Kimball remembered that that the drug caused liver problems. Mm-hmm. And all these samples came from healthy livers and the same healthy liver. So <laughs> so if Lentz was doing this, uh, he was really uh, uh, getting a bit slipshod here. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, there's a similar gimmick, and I can't remember if it's in the China Syndrome or Silkwood, but uh, somebody ends up investigating the welds that were used in the construction of a nuclear plant. And it turns out all the x-rays of the welds were kept on file, you know, for uh, CYA or for whatever, you know. And when the person compares the welds, it turns out they overlap perfectly. They're just duplicates <laughs> of the same scene of X-ray over and over again. See, yeah, the bad guys seem to take the same uh, approach. Always <laughs> <laughs> yeah. cutting corners. <laughs> so the agents question Bones, um, and he tries at first to not give away anything, but he finally buckles under their pressure. Um, and meanwhile, Sykes is lurking somewhere down in this guy's work area, and he's watching all this. Mm. Uh, we just sort of see him in the shadows. It wasn't, I mean, I guess he's after Kimball, but I, I wondered for a bit if he was also supposed to take care of Bones or something, you know, because he would. Yeah, I wondered that like, myself if he was going to turn up dead. Because he would know what Kimball was looking for, which would tip people off, you know? Yeah. Although he doesn't necessarily know exactly what he hopes to find. He, he mm. might just know that he wants to see the samples. Mm. So, uh, Kath, talking to Kimball, she says that uh, Lentz signed approvals for all these samples the day that he died. And at this, Kimball realizes Lentz wasn't the bad guy, but he knows who the real bad guy was. And he tells Kath he's going to see a friend. Mm. 
the agents, uh, the marshal's agents learned some more uh, from Bones. Bones didn't know where Kimball was going, which doesn't teach him anything. But what they, he does teach them is that Nichols knew Lentz, and in fact, he was Lentz's boss. So, no, right. He had told them he'd friend. never seen him before. Although, I got to say, this is a big mistake on Nichols' part. Like, how would they possibly not figure out that an employee of his, that he was an employee of his, right? I mean, he it was going to get figured out. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's one facet of a much bigger problem that I alluded to earlier, and I may <laughs> as well just bring it out now while we've, and we've, we've pretty much revealed what's going on at this point. You know, this compound, RU490 or whatever it is, we know it causes liver damage, and they're covering it up so the drug can get approved, so the drug can get used, so it can be used on real patients, who will then come down en masse with liver damage, and <laughs> the, the game will be up. You know, So it's not the greatest plan, I don't think. <laughs> oh, it's, they can't hide that forever. I mean, if... if uh, huge numbers of people are getting their livers damaged by this drug. It's bound to come out at some point, I would think. Well, you know, we could combine this with um, what was the film where uh, Soylent Green is people? Oh, yeah. To, then, <laughs> if we eat the people who got the bad livers, we might never find <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's um, seem, seems like a one of those cases of uh, digging the hole deeper. Oh, <laughs> uh, well. Anyway, that's, yeah, that my, I enjoyed this movie overall. I'll, I'll, I'll elaborate on that when we get to the final analysis. But, but this, the big evil plan in the whole thing is, I don't know. It's not, <laughs> I'm not terribly, <laughs> not, not terribly impressed by it. Right. Oh, well. Anyway, let me find out where I was in my notes here. <laughs> okay. So, on, upon learning that uh, Nichols was Lentz's boss, uh, Gerard sends an agent to find Nichols at the Hilton. Sykes is outside the hospital talking on the payphone to someone. He's reporting that he didn't find Kimball in the hospital. But just then, here comes Kimball down an alley, and uh, Sykes follows him. And Kimball heads up to the elevated station. That's the uh, the subway station that isn't sub. So he's up there, and meanwhile, Gerard's team finds out that Lentz was a hit and run. This wasn't just a car accident that he died in. It was uh, something a little bit hinky about it. Kimball called Sykes on the night of the murder from his car phone. That's another thing we find out. So uh, this was 93, did you say? Yeah, and I, I also forgot to mention what turns out to be a key plot point, which is in the on that first day when they're going to the charity thing, it turns out that Nichols borrowed Kimball's car, mm. um, and then he returns the keys to him and thanks him for borrowing the car, and that becomes important now, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you'd think... Uh... Uh, something like that might have uh, come out in the trial, but uh, <laughs> well. So, on the train, a guy in the train is reading a tabloid, and on the front cover is a big old picture of Kimball. 
Mm. Sure enough, he eventually flips it over and looks at the cover, and uh, he puts two and two together pretty fast. And uh, he goes to the next car to talk to the cop there. Mm. But when he leaves, it turns out that Sykes has been lurking in a corner of the car, and he holds a gun on Kimball. Uh, the cop then comes into the car, and he yells, Kimball, and Sykes shoots him, which, uh, <laughs> I don't know, seems like an overreaction, but uh, that's what he does. Uh, Kimball pulls the emergency brake. Uh, this uh, makes Sykes lurch off balance, gives Kimball a chance to overcome him and handcuff him to one of the metal poles in the subway car. Then the, the train has come to a stop, so Kimball breaks a window because the doors won't open for him. He breaks a window and gets out through that, and he flees. And Gerard gets the report of a Kimball spotting. He doesn't know yet uh, that this police officer has been shot and apparently killed um, from what right. we find and, out And, of later. course, what's reported is that Kimball shot and killed the police officer, and that's all they know at, at the moment, you know. Right. Um, I, one thing that was funny to me is I I guess it'd be a different kind of movie. I was just imagining him accidentally handcuffing the uh, the artificial arm to the uh, to the pole. Oh. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, ah, the other thing that's interesting good. here in terms of the mythology in, in this movie is that uh, you know theoretically his whole life has been about getting the one armed man and finding the one armed man. But in this movie, it turns out the one armed man isn't really his goal and he doesn't kill him. He could kill him. He has two mm -hmm. guns, you know, the gun from the cop and the gun from, yeah. from Sykes, but instead he just handcuffs him. Yeah. Uh, and this is, like, this is the guy who actually killed his wife, but right. he wasn't the, he wasn't the uh, prime mover in the whole scheme. So yeah, Kimball's a merciful guy, I guess. Kimball goes, uh, he disposes of the, his gun in a mailbox on the street Meanwhile, in the car with uh, with Gerard, Cosmo says the Chicago PD will eat Kimball alive. So he knows now that the right. uh, well, they think the, he's a cop yeah. killer. Yeah, and, and and this is also accurate, right? I mean, you you're in trouble now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. From from what I've heard, um, you know, even even the big mafia mobsters, you know, even like you know Al Capone type guys in Prohibition, they would often take great you know, go to great lengths to avoid killing the police because if you did that, uh, they tend to take that personally. So, same thing uh, has obtained for many, many years, as far as I know. Nichols at the hotel, he's introduced as the keynote speaker at the convention, which is funny because his speech turns out to be just basically an advertisement for this new wonder drug. <laughs> Although, again, not unrealistic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kimball enters the hotel, and cops begin arriving at the hotel. Gerard hears the police radio, and he knows that Kimball was spotted entering the hotel. Uh, Nichols takes the podium. Now, my narration is uh, going to get a little clipped here, just because there's a lot of different stuff that goes on simultaneously, and I just took brief notes for each one. So, and, and none of it is like, you know, it's all pretty simple, straightforward stuff. So... Nichols takes the podium. Gerard arrives at the hotel. A cop at the hotel tells Gerard that Kimball is going down. Uh, they, the cops aren't going to play nice with him. If they get a chance to uh, do him in, they're going to do it. Yep. And Gerard just goes ahead and takes his team into the hotel. The cops don't want him to, but uh, 
Gerard says, arrest me, <laughs> which they <laughs> probably would have a hard time justifying. And then the marshal with the ponytail. Now, this is where uh, he starts to come back into his own. Because, you know, last time we had a big di discussion with him, he was, uh, uh, he had just had a gun discharged right next to his eardrum uh, that could potentially if it had been aimed incorrectly, have killed him. So mm. ponytail marshal was, uh, was distraught, but now he's in fine form. He's gotten into the hotel security office and the, the security guards recognize that he's in charge. So he's doing good. Uh, Nichols is talking about Provasic, which is the, uh, you know, the marketing name for this RU 490. Mm. Kimball enters the room uh, also, he says another thing, by the way, that if someone says this, uh, you know, you know, it's not true. He says it has absolutely no side effects. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that is not true at all. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, that's one, one of the things that I always find humorous when, especially the media, you know, because, oh, it was a, you know, toxic chemical or whatever. And like, there's nothing that's not a toxic chemical. If, <laughs> it's, it's only a question of how much you take, right? Everything yeah. is toxic. If you drink enough water, you will die. Everything oh, is yeah. toxic. It's only a question of the amount. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the poison is in the dose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nichols spots Kimball in the back eventually, and uh, he sort of stumbles in his speech, but he keeps going. Kimball starts to approach the podium. Uh, Nichols keeps keeps speaking, and he's talking about this relationship between the hospital and uh, Devlin McGregor, the pharmaceutical company. You know, this collaboration between them, he's hoping it'll continue, and he's talking about the model for a continued dishonest. <laughs> Let me correct himself to honest. Okay. So a bit of a Freudian slip there for poor old Dr. Nichols. And also, you know, since he's been in the news and everything, as Kimball walks along, the crowd is noticing him and starting to, you know, kind of exclaim or, you know, make noise. <laughs> about, you know, yeah. Yeah. So Kimball's only a few yards away from the podium now, and uh, Nichols addresses him directly. Uh, he says, basically, sorry, I'm in the middle of a speech. <laughs> <laughs> Kimball says, you almost got away with it, didn't you? And he's he's talking loudly enough that plenty of the people around can can hear what he's saying. Nichols tries to brush all this off as Kimball does not feeling well. Finally, he excuses himself to go talk to Kimball personally. You know, he says, just uh, drink your drinks or whatever, and I'll be back. Kimball says to him, and they're still in this room. They're stopped to the side of the stage now. Kimball says, you switched the samples after Lentz died. He keeps talking about things that we, we know already. Nichols walks out of the room. Uh, Kimball follows him, and as Kimball leaves, he gives one final mention for the audience of uh, Provasic <laughs> so that they will remember that there's something fishy going on there. Kimball and Nichols end up in a big fancy suite. Uh, they have a fight there. They're smashing chairs and all kinds of stuff, and they... Burst through the doors out onto the balcony. Meanwhile, Gerard gets directions to the presidential suite. Police copter arrives. Uh, the cop in charge tells them as soon as they have a clean shot, they should start sniping. And that's what happens. Uh, they start trying to, trying to take down Kimball. Gerard's assistant, though, the ponytail guy, uh, he radios the police and he tells them there's a federal marshal on the roof because Gerard has just gotten up there. There's a federal well, marshal on the roof, and you should well, hold before, your fire. 
Yeah, before he makes that call, Gerard has one of his nice lines, right? He tells them, tell them to stop shooting. Or, and, and they're like, well, what do we say? And he says, because I don't want to get shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he's told them to hold their fire, and the copter is keeping Kimball in the spotlight, but Nichols has suddenly attacked him, hopped out from behind a protrusion of some sort on the roof, and uh, so now they're fighting again. So now the copter can't take a shot, even if they wanted to, or they, at least they could. But I mean, they, now there's another person involved, and they don't want to take a chance on that. So uh, eventually, Kimball and Nichols crash through a skylight. Uh, now this one, they briefly build up a little tension. Like, yeah, they're lying in a skylight, but maybe they'll get off of it. But no, they don't. They just end up breaking through it. <laughs> and that skylight leads right down into an elevator shaft. So they fall a few stories. Nichols falls through the roof of the car, and Kimball lands on the roof of the car. The elevator's going down. Nichols comes to, and he stops the elevator. It turns out this is the laundry floor. <laughs> uh, so he scuttles off to do his nefarious deeds. And, uh, I think, you know, these ending scenes are either always on the laundry floor or at the airport in the luggage uh, room, right? <laughs> uh, 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 yeah. <laughs> Actually, Matt, Max Payne 3 uh, ends that way. <laughs> Kimball gets out of the elevator just as the door is closing. Now, I would think that when the door closed, well, the elevator would have started moving probably because somebody would have called it by now. So, yeah, it's good that he got out when he did. Uh <laughs> Gerard and the agents arrive in the laundry area and they clear out the workers for their safety. And then we get a minute or two of just <laughs> everybody's just skulking around in the laundry, you know, that's sort of playing cat and mouse, trying to find each other. Uh, finally, Gerard calls out to Kimball. He warns him, uh, just hollers, hoping that Kimball can hear him. He warns him the police will shoot him on sight. <laughs> Which he, he says, might have already figured out because they were trying to shoot him earlier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Probably he gets the gist already. <laughs> and he says, Richard, I know you're innocent. And then he proceeds to back this up with some details. And this probably uh, this probably is why momentarily uh, Nichols will try to attack Gerard <laughs> because he knows how much Gerard knows. And he... Right. You know, that's not going to uh, help him at all. But uh, at this point, he isn't thinking entirely clearly, I don't well, think. And some of what Gerard explains here kind of brings things together, which you might or might not have figured out at this point, which is, oh, because he borrowed Kimball's car, he had his keys. His keys allowed the one-armed man to get into his house without triggering the alarm. And also, they had a call, remember, from Kimball to Sykes, the one-armed man. Well, that was actually uh, Nichols in his car calling Sykes, right? So he sort of puts all this together at this point and says he understands all these pieces. <laughs> right, right. So Nichols, there's a a weird thing here. It's, it's a heavy eye beam, you know, the <laughs> standard construction style beam hanging there, but it has little clothes hooks welded onto it, and it's on a sliding track. So all Nichols has to do is push this I-beam, and it goes sliding all the way across the room, and it gets Cosmo right in the face, which is a yeah. lucky shot, I think, but it worked, and uh, that would be a bad thing to get right in the face. Uh, it's a oh, big, yeah, heavy definitely beam. totally broken nose and, you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. More than that, yeah. Yeah. So. 
Uh, and when Cosmo is down, uh, Nichols takes his gun. And Nichols, it ends up, after a little more cat and mouse, Nichols is just about to shoot Gerard, presumably because Gerard now knows too much. Uh, but now Kimball comes up behind him, and he's got a big, heavy metal bar. And he smacks Nichols in the back of his knees. And then as Nichols starts to go down, he smacks him in the back of his back. And uh, that uh, that knocks him out unconscious on the floor. So at this point, Gerard begins to approach Kimball. Kimball drops the bar, and he says, they killed my wife. Gerard says, I know it, Richard. And also, he can see, I mean, he didn't know, but he can see now that Nichols was about to shoot. You know, Gerard can see that Nichols is about to shoot him because the gun is, you know, sitting there right. next to his hand, you know. Yep. Yeah, so, so Kimball actually saved him. So then we see that there's a crowd outside the hotel, and there's a lot of media as well, reporters and whatnot. Sykes is put in a cop car, uh, presumably to be treated gently and fairly. <laughs> Cosmo is on a stretcher going to the ambulance. He says he's going to take vacation now. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> seems like he'll make it, despite uh, getting an eye beam in the face. So good for him. Gerard and Kimball get in the back seat of a car, and Gerard uncuffs him as soon as the doors are closed. Kimball says, I thought you didn't care. Gerard replies, I don't. And then there's a little pause, and then he says, don't tell anybody, okay? <laughs> and the car drives off, and that's the end. <laughs> So it sounded like, obviously, that uh, you had some things you were not as uh, uh, impressed with uh, as well, I am with the movies. Well, it was mainly just uh, that one. I mean, the, the, the overarching evil plot behind the yeah. whole thing is uh, it just seems unworkable to me. Um, <laughs> but aside from that, I, I enjoyed it a great deal. I uh, had a lot of fun with it. It's uh, got a lot of you know, clever filmmaking and stuff, including the, uh, the scenes that you objected to, um, as being, you know, lying to the viewer. I thought of mm -hmm. as more like, uh, well, it's just <laughs> sort of, you know, it's a little bit of harmless fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I, I'll tell you, I think it's one that gets better when you watch it more in part, because you, if you watch the technique and you see how they're telling the story and you know where it's going already, you know, you can see how they're doing it. And I think um, it's, you know, it is amazingly well done. Uh, especially again, that first half hour, first 25 minutes is just, is just, you know, film school stuff. Like this is mm -hmm. how you tell a story and move from here to here and don't, you know, um, but I, now, normally, I'm more annoyed by the corporate evil guy stories. I'm so tired of that. It's so easy. But, oh, they're <laughs> they're poisoning the water. They're doing blah, blah, blah. Yeah, um, yeah. And as we both know, it's like, okay, how long is a company going to survive while they're poisoning people? Right. And it's not that there isn't historically uh, some issues w with that, but it's like always the case, right? The, the the corporate guys are always the evil guys. But at yeah. least uh, this doesn't bother me as much because it's a little more realistic. I mean. First of all, you know, the idea that medical professionals are seduced into going on to trips and, and other things, absolutely true. Um, oh, sure. And, or and, to uh, vouch for attitudes that they themselves may know are not entirely right. 
based in right. fact or the, whatever. Like you say, the the starkness of this, like everybody who takes is going to die. Yeah, that's that's you know over the top, right? I mean, obviously that just that just wouldn't work. But yeah. but I I'll say you know. Okay, here's the kind of conspiracy thing I believe in, right? And and now maybe I'll I'll offend some people. So it's kind of true when you look at what I would argue, or as I understand it, when you look at like statins, right? So statins, uh, which are uh, you know anti-cholesterol or cholesterol-lowering drugs, are the most uh, prescribed drugs right now in the United States. They make billions of dollars for the manufacturers. Well. When they rolled out the main study that caused people to and doctors to start prescribing statins, that study is complete bullshit. <laughs> and uh, it, it is one of those cases you always see this, especially when the mainstream media reports on drugs and things, right? And so they'll say, Oh, it's a miracle drug, you know, 50% less chance of getting cancer. Mm-hmm. That's never true. <laughs> when they <laughs> say you have 50% less chance of getting cancer, what they mean is in this circumstance, someone who doesn't take the drugs has 0.002 chance of getting cancer. And mm-hmm. someone who does take the drug has 0.001 chance of getting cancer. Right. And they say 50% chance, less chance you'll get cancer. It's like, no. Right. <laughs> right? And that's what they did with statins is they played with the numbers. Um, in that same manner to make it seem like a miracle drug. And I'm not saying, of course, you know, do your talk to your doctor, do whatever you want to. All I'm saying is I think they screwed around with this statistics for statins. And um, I'm not necessarily on board. There are people who believe that like in this movie, that statins actually kill people and do all this stuff. And I'm not on board. I don't know. You know, I'm not a fucking doctor. I don't know. I just think (laughs) that they they screwed around with, with that stuff and that it's prescribed, but there we go. So you, uh, you have the, uh, what was the guy's name? Um, Ansel keys, the guy who uh, did all those, he did like 21 studies and then, uh, picked out the seven that seemed like they might support his thesis, you know? So now we're going to, yeah, we're going to go way off the deep end here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Enough of that. (laughs) uh, But all, all that is to say that even though they, they obviously exaggerate it way too far in this movie, the, the underlying principle I think is valid, right? That there are drugs where, where they use inaccurate data to sell the drug. Yeah. The other funny thing about going on, and again, that's just because it's this kind of movie, right? And you need your, your third act fight at the end and everything. But like, what is Nichols expecting here? Like he was just giving a talk in front of all these doctors in a conference. And now he's going to go downstairs and shoot Kimball and shoot Gerard and, and kill, you know, try to kill Cosmo. And like, no one's going to notice that he was the one who went out with them. <laughs> like what, like it, 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 it only makes sense if at some point in there, he kind of goes crazy. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think that's pretty much what happened. He just, uh, he just sort of went over the top, you know? Uh, yeah. He's, he's used to being a respected doctor not being questioned by anybody. And, uh, uh, things just fell apart real fast. Uh, it's not at all hard to believe that he was not in his, clearest mind at that point well an equivalent again watching too many youtube crime things uh that i've seen all over and over again are these car chases right it's insane so someone gets pulled over for a bad light or whatever and maybe they have a criminal record and they're they don't want to go back to jail so what do they do they drive off and then they get into a chase and the chase goes on maybe even for an hour and they hit a bunch of cars and, and maybe they run over somebody and et cetera. And so it's like, okay, you just turned a 
ticket for a light that was out and, you know, maybe having to deal with some legal issue into murder and felonies and et cetera. Right. And there's no point. These guys almost never very rare that in the middle of the chase, they go, you know, this doesn't make any sense. And they stop. Right. (laughs) (laughs) They always take it to the ridiculous end and then they get shot or driven or, or, you know, they drive into, you know, something or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think that might be the, uh, the sunk cost fallacy there. Yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> right. So, okay. Well, it's good to know you enjoyed it. Obviously yeah. for me, I mean, this is definitely, if you've never seen it, it's worth watching. And like I said, I think it's worth watching more than once over time. Cause you'll get more out of it. It's just a lot of fun. It's Harrison Ford at his best. It's Tommy Lee Jones at his best, you know, just they're, they're all giving it their all. And I, I think sometimes, like we mentioned when, in movies where the actors are having to, provide a lot i think it invests them more you know we see that in blade runner right i mean blade runner the same thing where ridley scott was off making sure the you know the light was correct and the smoke was going in the right direction he didn't care (laughs) what the actors were doing and some of the reason you get like the you know the great um speech at the end about I've seen things you wouldn't believe in all that. Well, Rucker mm. Howard just made made that speech up that day. <laughs> yeah. um, and and Ridley Scott didn't care as long as, you know, everything else was working. And so sometimes actors sort of rise to the occasion when, you know, when they're allowed to. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, um, I, I definitely would say it's worth watching. I, uh, I wouldn't mind watching it again one day. I won't be like making it a yearly habit or don't (laughs) think, but uh, I wouldn't mind checking it again sometime down the road. It was a, it was a fun movie and there's, there's a lot going on. A lot of things happening simultaneously, you know, cuts between scenes where you just go like for 30 seconds to what's going on elsewhere in the city. And there's not much, uh, filler is something i always complain about and there's not much filler in this it's all uh pretty much all content so yeah it's in a lot of ways now that also makes it a real uh pain in the butt to write notes for for a podcast (laughs) but uh you know it's um i liked it uh probably not as much as you like it but uh i liked it so good choice yeah yeah can't ask for better than that and next up, we'll have our next host choice, which I think we don't know quite what that is yet, but we'll know soon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, see you next week. All right. The Fugitive. A QM production. Starring David Jansen as Dr. Richard Kimball, an innocent victim of blind justice, falsely convicted for the murder of his wife. Reprieved by fate when a train wreck freed him en route to the death house. Freed him to hide in lonely desperation, to change his identity, to toil at many jobs. Freed him to search for a one-armed man he saw leave the scene of the crime. Freed him to run before the relentless pursuit of the police lieutenant obsessed with his capture. Tuesday, August 29th. The day the running stopped.